Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. George Caldwell is taking the Soda Street to Chicago. First class? Yes, sir. Right this way. He's a busy publisher who's taking a train for one reason only. I just want to be bored. Come on. Well, you're in for the ride of your life. Yeah. We just picked out a little chicky, my friend, and it's hugging much all the way to Chicago. What do you publish? Oh, mostly nonfiction, cookbooks, how to do it books. Very interesting. Are you married? Divorced. But in the next three days, he will fall in love. He will witness a murder. And become involved in a bizarre international intrigue. All right, listen, Buster, you're in trouble. And I mean big trouble. Because I'm reporting you. All right, enough's enough. If you're willing to forget it, I don't believe this. Are you kidding? From an innocent passenger, George Caldwell will become a victim man who will be forced to risk his life in order to save it. Hold it! Don't move or I'll shoot! You've got a dead engineer in a runaway train that's going to hit Chicago in 15 minutes. By plane, by train, by the edge of your seat, it's the most hilarious suspense ride of your life. Nothing can stop Silver Street. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Silver Streak from 1976. The studio was 20th Century Fox, the release date was December 8, 1976. The running time, 114 minutes, and the rating was PG. The budget, $6 million. the box office was a smash, taking in $51 million, making it the fifth-ranked movie of 1976. Now, I must have seen Silver Streak on TV as a, when I was a kid, but the first Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor paired movie I really remember seeing was See No Evil, Hear No Evil. I believe that was from 1988. Uh, that was more slapstick comedy than the comedy mystery of Silver Street. All right, let's get into the main cast. You, of course, have Gene Wilder who plays George. My introduction to Gene Wilder was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory which was also early in his film career, though he started on television in the early 60s. His film debut was in 1967 in the terrific Bonnie and Clyde with Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. Also in 1967, he starred with Zero Mostel in the film adaptation of The Producers by Mel Brooks. Wilder's career continued to flourish in the 70s with two more Mel Brooks films, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. Richard Pryor plays Grover. At this point, Pryor was one of the top stand-up comedians around, but he was just starting to get into films. He was famously up for the Cleavon Little part in Blazing Saddles, but was too much of a loose cannon due to his rampant drug use at the time, though he was a writer on the film. A few of the better-known films Pryor appeared in before Silver Streak were Lady Sings the Blues with Diana Ross, The Mac, and Uptown Saturday Night, which was directed by Sidney Poitier with Bill Cosby and Harry Belafonte. Jill Clayburgh plays Hilly. Clayburgh's film career began in the early 1970s, though she made a name for herself initially on Broadway. She would continue to have bigger roles through the mid-70s, including Silver Street. But it was in 1978 where she really broke out when she won an Oscar for Best Actress for the movie An Unmarried Woman. A year earlier, she was in Semi-Tough with Burt Reynolds and Chris Christopherson. There's also a great supporting cast in Silver Streak with Ned Beatty, Patrick McGowan, Ray Walston, Richard Keel, Scatman Crothers, and Clifton James. 
the director Arthur Hiller. Hiller's career began directing TV shows in the 1950s and continued to do so through the early 1960s. He would start directing films in the 60s as well, including The Wheeler Dealers and The Americanization of Emily, both starring James Garner. He directed the original Out of Towners with Jack Lemmon, which we covered a few weeks ago, and his biggest hit prior to Silver Streak was Love Story with Ryan O'Neill and Allie McGraw. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. So the film was supposed to be a modern take on North by Northwest and a constant case of mistaken identity, and Gene Wilder's character has that Cary Grant type of attitude during the film. When meeting Gene Wilder after he saw Silver Streak, Cary Grant actually asked him if the script had been in any way inspired by North by Northwest. Wilder did admit that was correct, then Grant said, I knew it! Have you noticed that each time you take ordinary people, say, like you and me, and then take them into a situation way above their heads, it always makes a great thriller? The screenwriter Colin Higgins had written the cult hit Harold and Maude in 1971. He would go on to write two other great comedies after Silver Streak, Foul Play with Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn, and Nine to Five with Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton. Higginson's first choice to play George in Silver Streak was actually George Siegel, but Fox wanted Gene Wilder. Okay, let's get into the film. So it begins with George Gene Wilder arriving in a cab to a train station in Los Angeles to catch his train to Silver Streak to Chicago. George gives his ticket to the train porter named Ralston, which is Scatman Crothers, who is complaining about the damn hippies. <laughs> that will be a funny ongoing gag throughout. When George gets to his compartment, he accidentally opens the door to his neighbor's compartment and embarrassingly catches a woman undressing. The woman doesn't seem to be too upset while George fumbles to get the door closed. While in the dining car, George meets an overly friendly traveling vitamin salesman named Bob Sweet, played by Ned Beatty. Bob loves this particular train route because he uses the time to attempt to pick up women. Excellent trip, huh? Mm-hmm. You from Chicago? No, Los Angeles. I'm from Chicago. My name is Bob Sweet. A sweet man, but a mean baby. <laughs> George Caldwell. Yeah! So Bob sees his mark for the trip and attempts to pick up the woman who George accidentally opened the door on back at his compartment. The woman is not amused by Bob's cheesy pickup lines. Come on. Thank you. 
I apologize for the bad audio. There's not a ton available for this film, but Hilly dumped her drink down Bob's pants while George looks and laughs. A bit later, George is sitting down for dinner and the same woman asks if she can join him. Her name is Hilly, played by Jill Clayburgh, and she's a secretary with horrible penmanship, which they both laugh about. We find out George is heading to Chicago for his sister's wedding. Hilly is on a work trip for a recluse professor who was on a book tour for his latest work about Rembrandt. The two hit it off and have a nice flirtation with one another. After hours chatting in the dining car, they decide to take their drinks back to the compartment, and things get steamy between the two. George is startled when he sees a dead body hanging outside the train through their window. After he screams and Hilly turns around, the body is gone. George is freaked out and Hilly's warm nature calms him down, and they spend the rest of the night together. The next morning, George wakes up and while getting dressed, notices the book that Hilly's boss has written. When George looks at the back cover, he notices that the professor is the same person as the dead body he thought he saw the night before. Hilly is so sleepy that she doesn't take what George thinks he saw seriously and she goes back to sleep. George decides to go to the professor's compartment to confirm if he's crazy or not. George hears a commotion inside the professor's compartment. A man opens the door and has ransacked the compartment. The man is named Whiny, played by Ray Walston, who tells George to mind his own business and that he and Hilly are in trouble. George tries to intervene, but is forcibly removed by a giant man named Reese, which is Richard Keel, who still has the metal teeth like in the James Bond character he portrayed as Jaws. Reese ends up tossing out George like a sack of laundry out of the train. George is now stranded in the desert in the middle of nowhere. In the middle of nothingness, George finds a farmhouse and an older woman milking a cow named Rita. Rita agrees to take George into town to talk to the sheriff. However, she puts George to work to finish milking the cow, which does not go well. Also, Rita keeps calling George Steve. (laughs) And they're not taking a car into town. They're going to take her prop plane. George notices that while flying, they can beat the Silver Street to its next stop and can have the sheriff investigate. And Rita loves flying, and she's a bit wacky and decides that George should experience the thrill of buzzing a herd of sheep with her plane. Not once, but twice, much to the dismay of George, who hangs on by a thread. They make it to the train station in time, and George races to catch a train and is pulled on by a group of guys partying in the back of the train. When George walks through the train, he notices Hilly sitting in the dining car with another man, a high-profile art dealer named Roger Devereaux, played by Patrick McGowan. George follows Hilly and Devereaux through the train and sees Hilly go into her compartment alone. George ends up in Hilly's compartment to ask her if she's alright and explain what happened. She doesn't believe that the professor is actually dead. Suddenly, Devereaux enters Hilly's compartment and is introduced to George. As it turns out, Devereaux's chauffeur is Reese, and he's the one who tossed George off the train. George explains to Devereaux how he believes that the professor has been murdered. But then the professor appears, or someone that looks like the professor, that is, in the compartment along with Whiny. George is embarrassed and then leaves. As he closes the door, Devereaux slaps Hilly in the face. George decides to get drunk in the dining car and tells his drunken story to Bob. Bob is very interested in the story and actually believes George's story. As it turns out, Bob is not a traveling salesman. He's an FBI agent undercover. There has been an investigation to Devereaux's dealings for over two years, according to Bob. Devereaux had the professor killed because the details in the new book were going to tarnish Devereaux's image as a top art collector. Devereaux, as it turned out, had authenticated two Rembrandts that were actually forgeries. Devereaux and his men were searching for the real Rembrandt letters that the professor had in his possession, which proves Devereaux's blunder. George realizes that actually he has these letters when he tossed the book with the letters in it into his briefcase that morning when he was with Hilly. 
George gives the letters to Bob. However, Bob isn't long for this story as he's shot and killed when there's a knock at the door right as the train goes through a tunnel. The likely target was George and Bob was in the wrong place at the wrong time. George decides to take Bob's gun and is in charge of saving Hilly now. Unfortunately, Ralston, the porter, comes by the compartment and sees Bob dead and George with a gun in his hand and, of course, thinks that George shot Bob. But it was Reese that actually shot Bob, thinking it was George. And after Ralston yells for help, Reese chases George throughout the train, shooting at him. This leads to a death-defying chase on top of the train. Shockingly, George shoots Reese with a spear gun he happened to find in the back of the train before jumping on the roof, and Reese ends up falling to his death. George can't celebrate long and is knocked off the train by a stop sign pole and is again deboarded and stranded in the middle of nowhere. Eventually, George hitches a ride and is dropped off in the nearest town, and goes to the local sheriff's office and meets with the bumbling sheriff, Chauncey, played by Clifton James, who thinks George is the train murderer. Hello. Yeah. This is Chauncey. No shit. Chauncey, he's sitting right here in my office. That's right. Came in here spouting some bull about shooting some people in the train, one to confess. I knew he was a loony right off. Oh, yeah. Don't you worry. I've handled loonies before. Gotcha. Sheriff, I'm sorry. I guess I was a little rattled before. It must have sounded crazy to you. Oh, that's perfectly all right, Mr. Caldwell. Uh, that is what you said your name was, uh, didn't you? George Caldwell? Yeah. Um, uh, I really think that we ought to get on the phone to Washington. I'm sure if they heard what I have to say, they would do something about stopping the train. Oh, yeah. Them boys in Washington, they're pretty smart, all right. You ever watch them on TV? Bam, bam. <laughs> Sheriff, listen to me. They know all about Sweet and Devereaux. I figured that the Silver Streak should be in Kansas in an hour. We could stop the train at Scott City or maybe Dodge. All right, mister. Just keep your hands where they are and we'll have no trouble. Give me that. Don't shoot. Don't shoot? You stupid, ignorant son of a bitch, dumb bastard. Jesus Christ, I've met some dumb bastards in my time, but you outdo them all. Get over there. George now has the sheriff as his hostage and steals his patrol car. Now it's been over an hour in the film and you might be wondering, wait, I thought Richard Pryor was in this movie. Yes, he is. And when George steals the sheriff's car, it just happened to have an arrested man in the back seat named Grover, and that's Richard Pryor. George gives Grover the keys to uncuff himself, and in turn, George needs Grover to help him save Hilly and catch Devereaux. So I realize that the first hour of the film is a bit drawn out. It's definitely an interesting ride. However, it's the final hour of the film where the thrilling action and comedy really make this a fun film. And ultimately, it's the chemistry of Wilder and Pryor, which then led to three additional films together. Now, I don't want to give away the rest of the plot, but there are a few scenes too funny not to share. So without giving away too much detail, here are a few. Here you get to hear Scatman Carruthers complain about hippies. Hey, are you all right? Listen, is there any way... Holy to... moly, the killer! No, he's okay. Really. Listen to me. Is there any way to get to the engine without going over the roof? There ain't no way to get to the engine, period. Why are we going so fast? Because there's no one driving this train. Oh, that's impossible. It would stop. Does this look as if we're stopping? No, the hell don't. I better go pull the emergency car. Emergency cars have been cut. Damn hippies. 
And of course, when George is trying not to get noticed later in the film, Grover tries to disguise him by making him, well, black. <laughs> yes, today this would never fly because comedy is dead today. But in the context of the film, it really is hilarious. So just see the movie before being offended. I can't pass for black. Who you tell them? I didn't say I was going to make you black. I said I was going to get you on the train. Now we got to make them cops think you're black. It'll never work. Never. What, are you afraid it won't come off? Oh, that's a good joke. That's humorous. I like that. May I speak? Yeah. This is crazy! It'll never work! Don't you understand? Are you kidding? Look at that. Al Joseph made a million bucks looking like that. Now here, you try it. Yeah, it looks good. Get on top of your head. Oh, my jacket. You know, it's like this beanie on your head. All right, Ace Deuce. That's bad, man. You're looking good. Now, here, take this radio. When you step out of here, you gotta step out of here like king shit, right? You bad. I put that radio to your ear. That's gonna help cover your face, right? And just move with the rhythm of the music. Move your body with the rhythm of the music. That's all you gotta remember, okay? Let me see you try it. Step to the music. Step to the music. Yeah. Step to the music. Stop. How come you white has got such a tight ass, man? How you gonna walk out of here with a tan face that white walk? Just get into the music. Come on, George. Come on. Loosen up. Listen to the beat. Let your feet move. Now do it. Can't you feel it? The temple's right here. Right in there. That's all you got to do. Yeah, now try it. Don't you feel it? Yeah. yeah. Needs work, George. Needs a lot of work. You know that. Will you practice? Yes, man, you got to practice. But let it be loose. Listen to the music. Follow the beat. Here. Feel it coming up? Feel it? It's coming? That's it. I'm going to get the ticket. Okay, now be back. Work on it, George. God, thanks. Come on, man. Get some jive going. Be cool. Shake it, but don't break it. Hey, man. How do I look? You look sharp, Mr. I feel sharp. You hear? I feel like it's turn around midnight. Get down! Get down! Feeling good! Feeling fine! Feeling real fine! That's it! Just loosen up those hips, sugar! Oh, you buddy's got a tight ass! Yeah, get that ass moving there! Out of sight! I'm a macaroni! Get down! I'm the key! Number one, baby! Ba 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 for God's sake, man, to keep clean. I don't think we'll make it past the cops. We'll make it past the cops. I just hope we don't see no Muslims. By the way, the same people offended by this last scene likely think that the Wayans Brothers in White Chicks is hilarious, which is a funny movie too. You know, both can be funny. All right, moving right along. Actually, Nick Stewart is the shoeshine guy who they get shoe polish from, and if you're a fan of early uh, 50s television and the terrific groundbreaking show Amos and Andy, Nick Stewart played Lightning. All right, some fun facts. While there was an undeniable chemistry on screen between Wilder and Pryor, that doesn't mean they were great friends off screen. Now, most of this was due to Pryor's erratic behavior caused by his massive drug use. 
For example, after the success of Stir Crazy in 1980, the film Trading Places was going to star Wilder and Pryor. But this was the time when Pryor famously set himself on fire after freebasing cocaine. Of course, Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy famously were the stars of Trading Places. And that's the thing about acting in film. What you see on screen doesn't mean it's reality. And while the two had respect for each other's talents, they simply were different people who traveled in different circles. But the films live on forever. Silver Streak was dominated for Best Sound, but lost to All the President's Men. Now, the movie was originally meant to be filmed in the United States. However, the National Rail Passenger Corporation, which is Amtrak, was fearful of adverse publicity and refused to cooperate. As a result, the producers were forced to work with the Canadian Pacific Railway using a thinly disguised CPR rail equipment and shooting exteriors along of the CP rail right of way. And I do have a great clip from 1976 from The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson featuring Richard Pryor, who is also promoting Silver Street. Richard Pryor is with us tonight, and he is uh, he's a truly gifted comedian. He's a writer, he's an actor, does stand-up comedy. He's got a couple of hit albums out, the latest dealing with the newest one, dealing with the Bicentennial. And he's one of the stars. That's true. What's, what's funny about that? What did I say? Oh, the I, album title. Oh, the album title. I'll let Richard tell you that. Uh, people resent it from me. Yes, they would. What is the title? They might. They might. I know what it is. But people get uptight if I would say that. Why don't you ask Richard the title of the album when he comes out? I think I will. But the picture is called Silver Streak. Would you welcome Richard Pryor? Good evening. Hello. You were funny in that picture. I saw it the other night. Oh, thank you. You were really funny in that picture. One line that that, that did it for me, and I'm not going to say the line, is when you stand up in all the confusion at the train and ask somebody something, but I'm not going to tip it because it'll mean nothing. But that lady... I haven't seen it. You haven't seen the picture at all? No, I haven't seen it yet. I was waiting until it was over, publicity over, then you could say what you really thought. Yeah. I wonder if I don't like it and I go see it, people say, what did you think? Well, I didn't like it. <laughs> then they'll fire you. Yeah, somebody could. Gore Vidal was on the show one night. He's uh, involved in Caliglia and he came on and he says, it's a real turkey. <laughs> he did. Uh, yeah, he's involved in the picture. See, he might get killed. Yeah. How do you know that they didn't cut out some of the stuff in the picture that you might, you might have liked? I don't care. <laughs> you got the money up front? What do you care what they cut out? Yes. Take the money right to the $4. bank. Four dollars and eighty cents, cash. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's just a funny picture. It went along with Gene Wilder and the young lady who was... Uh, Jill Clayburg. Uh, yeah. And Scatman Carruthers. That's right, Scat. Patrick McGowan, Ray Walston. It's a weird, strange, funny picture. A little blend of... Uh, Tony Zale, Jake LaMotta, <laughs> Ray Charles, <laughs> Cast of Thousands. You're just dropping... Now, you, they're going to they're gonna buy this from you. <laughs> well, I guess only, only toward the end of the picture. Yeah. But we, can't, we, can, we don't want to tip the finish. Yeah. But uh, we got a film. You want to show the film clip already? This, there's a funny scene in here where you're trying to... Uh, uh, Wilder has been thrown off the train a couple of times, if I remember. Yeah. And you're trying to get, get him, him back on the train and get in. It's, hide it's from the police all or something. All points, bulletin is out. They're looking for him all over. So you you come up, you're going to make him black. Yes. And you're trying to teach him the, the jive. You're trying to teach him the rhythm, how to talk, how to get the, how to get with it. And he has a terrible time. It yes, just he he befuddles well, him completely. Is it on? I'm not yet. But uh, <laughs> I think this is the... Part of the scene we're gonna, where you're making him up in the men's room, right? Yeah. Teaching him how to be black. 
It's a good moment. Yeah, that whole scene there, which goes on for another five, six, seven minutes, one of the funny scenes in the picture. That was a inspiration. Then you trying to him, get him with it, yeah. and trying to. You know to what get was hard feeling. about working on the movie? Not that it's interesting, but <laughs> it was hard because all the lines were written. You know, there was no ad lib stuff. Because I usually, they usually, when I'm in a movie, they say, "All right, Rich, this is your scene. Go, action." You know, and uh, do that. But Arthur Hiller's kind of director makes you kind of stick to discipline or something th that way. Wouldn't you rather work a little more free form and something and throw? Because you can always edit things, you can always cut, and sometimes, if you're skilled enough to do that, which you are, doing your own stuff. I'm serious. <laughs> then you can always come in and cut it. Did you ex <laughs> did you explain him to like that, Arthur? I'm telling you, know, you can cut with a thing. Did you explain that to Mr. Hill? No, no, I didn't explain nothing to Hill. He's too low key. You can't explain stuff to people that are low key. Arthur, I'd like to do the scene. Don't worry. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> That's the way they talk when they make movies for seven million. Nobody gets upset. Yeah. The train disappears and go, don't worry. <laughs> we'll get another train. <laughs> how would you, if you wanted to do a picture and you wanted to direct it yourself, how would you do it? I would do it with midgets. <laughs> Tiny people, they don't eat much at lunch. That's Save right. a lot of money. It's good thinking right off. Yes. Good thinking. You gotta come out under budget also with yes. I would love to do a movie about winos. Do a, a movie called King of the Winos. You know, because it was a wino, like this is Christmas. I learned about Christmas from a wino named Mudbone. Mudbone? Old man, he said, You know, I wasn't allowed to have Christmas in 1927. <laughs> That's right, so a little short black man out of Detroit. He used to steal toys all summer, and in the wintertime, he'd give them away to the kids. Lived in the ghetto then, you know, and they come down the fireplace, he wasn't worried about it because he didn't have no fire. <laughs> so one time he made a mistake, dropped in a white neighborhood, burn up. <laughs> Where'd you grow up? You, you grew up back in Illinois, right? Yes, Peoria, Illinois. Peoria, Illinois. You ever go home? Yes, I do. I go, I'm not allowed in Peoria no more. I didn't know that. No, when you make some money, don't want you in town no more. It's just a, no, keep away, we don't want to see it. Don't remind us. You know, just, just stay away. You know what I mean? Don't you don't send no money for the junkies. Just leave us alone. So you're probably not your yeah, big star. Yeah, big star. You stop shooting up, huh? <laughs> Thank you, somebody. <laughs> what kind of an upbringing did you have? Seriously, I had a wonderful upbringing. Mm -hmm. my, my parents were very strict. Uh, for where I live, you know, we lived in a neighborhood where was a lot of whorehouses, right? And all in our, in our neighborhood. But my parents were really strict and they taught me manners and things like that. They've helped me in my life, for real. But I lived in really a tough neighborhood, but my parents did not allow me to be anything but wonderful. What? <laughs> you know what That's I mean? good upbringing. Because I mean, when the gangs were stealing, I couldn't show up to after the robbery. Just a, just yeah. split. If I already got caught by the police, I'd ask them to kill me. Please, don't let my dad catch me. Please, kill me. <laughs> you're, not, you're not doing many clubs anymore, eh? Because you've been doing the films, you got the, the albums uh, yeah. are hot. Yeah, so everything's going pretty well, I guess. IRS lighting up on me, too. Hmm? No one went to jail for the IRS, income tax evasion. Last... You're kidding. No, they wasn't kidding either. <laughs> did you declare everything, or did you take I some deductions? I told the judge, I said, Your Honor, I forgot. <laughs> he said, you remember next year. <laughs> Now, let me ask a question. I don't mean to put you on the spot. Now, you use the term...
Right. Now, does the black community get on you for using that on a show? Yes. Well, they come on and say, fire, why do you go out there and sit on the Tonight Show and say that? We've been trying to overcome this for centuries, and you come out there and use it. Come up, Tom, and come up. Yeah. Now, how do you answer it? What do you say? I don't say nothing. (laughs) I say, get out of my face. Sometimes he just takes a simple explanation like that, you know, to, to don't analyze it too deeply and just lay it out. He says, go away from me. Jim Brown once told me something like, you say, quit analyzing, because I said to Jim Brown, I said, Jim, I'm afraid to fly. Jim said, me too. I said, why is that? He said, because it's in the air. <laughs> Ain't nobody explained it to me that way. That's right. Nobody ever explained it to me that way Because it's in the air. You get hurt, get hurt, terminally hurt by falling down like that. You still don't fly or do you? No, I hate to fly. Though. I get on after get Jesus on the plane with me. Well, I be praying, Lord, please, why did I do my mother that way when I was little? I think of all kinds of things. When really I think ever? Yeah. I should have never left my first wife. I, I always like to see who's on the plane when I fly because I realize if it crashes, I want to see who's going to get top billing. Did you ever do that? Huh? If there are a lot of celebrities on there and the plane goes down, you know, I don't want to be on with Sinatra. <laughs> no. Frank Sinatra and, and Frank. others d- yeah. done away with. You know, you know, you're not even going to get done. I want to be the only one going. A lot of people. Yeah. The only way to go. I like to look at the pilot and see if they made love the night before they get on the plane. I, I don't want no angry pilots that might oh. go to sleep. <laughs> so do you feel relaxed? Judy, come here. <laughs> <laughs> You got all those phobias. You got any more phobias like that? Uh, I have a phobia of dying. Phobia of dying. Great fear of dying. Yeah. You know, I worry about that a lot. I don't want to die, especially while I'm alive. Yeah. <laughs> Woody Allen had a good comment on that, which bears red. It's like nobody explained it. He says he is. He doesn't fear dying. He just doesn't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> that again. He said, "Oh, that's that's simple. That I understand." Okay, let me do this commercial. Then we're going to come right back. Stay where you are. Okay. Right after this, one of our. All right, if you haven't seen this great comedy, I highly recommend you check it out, especially if you're a fan of North by Northwest. Well, I won't say it's as good as North by Northwest. It's still fun. And, of course, you can't deny Wilder and Pryor. And I'll be back next week for yet another random movie from my DVD collection. If you are ever in the San Francisco Bay Area and still love collecting or renting DVDs or VHS tapes, come check out Captain Video and San Mateo at 2837 South El Camino Real. Captain Video is open six days a week and closed on Wednesday, and one of the last traditional video stores still running in the United States. New movies you can rent for $2.99 a day. Old movies you can rent for $2.99 for five days. And if renting isn't your thing, you can also purchase anything you find in the store. Be sure to tell Ira that you heard about Captain Video from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. Happy renting and happy collecting at Captain Video. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.